0: You're listening to the Unsiloed
1: Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Paul Moreland, who is at Oxford University and also is the author of this book right here called The Human Tide. How population shaped the modern world, and is also the author of an upcoming book called Tomorrow's People, which I guess is the sequel to The Human Tide. Since this book takes us to the the present, I guess this next book is going to take us to the future, and hopefully, we'll have a chance to talk about that book. But I want to start off by discussing this whole idea of demography. Right when I was getting my PhD in history. I had a friend and and she was getting her PhD in history and demography. And I thought, this this is weird. Isn't just demography one slice of of history, right? Isn't it just taking a step back and and looking at the big macro movements over the long durée? And so I think part of what we want to discuss today is what is it about demography that gives you a window into history that enables you to see things that might be Camouflaged or, or disguised by the more prosaic and uh, immediate aspects of history, and and I think you point out that the growth and shrinkage and aging and migration of peoples is both a cause of other historical events and also a consequence of other historical events. So tell us, just demography, like what is it unique about? Is demography Is demography going to go away and just get subsumed into history, kind of like geography kind of went away, or is is demography going to continue to offer these unique insights that, that make it a distinct field?
0: Well, I think demography has indeed a unique insight into history. It's a field of its own, so quite apart from history, people are studying What drives fertility? What drives mortality? What drives migration? It can be a very contemporary study. It can be a highly mathematical, highly statistical study. But thinking of it historically, it is a window on history, and there are many windows on history. And to see history properly, we need to look through all those windows. Economics, for example. Imagine that historians had written history. Indeed, to some extent, they did – and they never really taken account of economics. Someone came along and said, "Hold on a minute, economics actually matters. The size of economies, the strength of industries, and so on." So I don't make any huge claims for demography to say this is the only way to look at history. What I do say is, in market terms, it's a value stock. Perhaps would be a good way of putting it. It's been a little bit under undervalued, a little bit ignored. The idea behind the human tide was really to say. People have done amazing work on historical demography. So they've gone in great detail, particularly in Britain, looked at parish records, looked at whether fertility actually went up early on in the expansion of British population in the 19th century. Was it just a question of mortality falling? They've done some really painstaking work on some very detailed stuff. Historians have written big histories that have taken some account of demography. But what I don't think anyone had really done to this stage, and I think that's what makes the human tide unique, is to say, what if we just told the story of the last 200 years from a demographic point of view? What are the parts of history, what are the big events which can be explained or can have new light thrown on them by looking at things through a demographic lens? So my argument would be demography is one of many windows, but it's probably been looked through a lot less than others. So far as is demography going to go away, the answer is no. So the the reason someone might have said demography was going to go away is as follows. We're all going to be Denmark to use, I think it was Fukuyama who used that term, we're all going to move towards a world of low fertility, long life expectancy, the differences are going to be pretty small. Ultimately, everywhere is going to end up with sub replacement fertility. Populations will age and populations will start shrinking. And that's going to be universal. Some countries are ahead. Obviously, Japan's way ahead. We're getting there. Africa is way behind, but it'll get there. And, you know, if you come back in 150 years, the world will be full of old people and declining populations. So that's. The kind of the end of demographic history, if you like. I do in my next book talk a little bit about getting to Denmark and the Fukuyama thesis and the reason I think that's not right is what I call post-modern demography. So think of demography very simply as having three parts to its history pre-modern, modern, post-modern. pre-modern everyone again to quote myself, everyone is breeding like rabbits and dying like flies. Now that's a simplification because actually, populations often expand and then they get knocked back quite suddenly by disaster so there's this kind of two steps forward one step back it's not always the case that people are dying like flies and in the early and high middle ages the european populations expanded same in china so there are good times and bad times but along come wars or famines the thing gets knocked back and it only moves forward very slowly because people do have big families some societies have monasteries and lots of people being effectively taken out of the birthing pool or they have actually infanticide or clever ways of avoiding having children but basically people have a lot of kids and a lot of people die a lot of kids die and the population roughly quadruples between julius caesar and queen victoria which is actually a really slow rate of growth so that's pre-history, pre-modernity, if you like. Then you get to modernity, and that's all about material conditions. And it's the world of the demographic transition. So we moved from Malthus, which is pre-modernity, as he described it. We move to modernity, which is this transition. Whereby conditions improve, fertility rates stay high, but mortality falls, populations explode, and then eventually, educated women, urbanization, industrialization, higher incomes, fertility rates fall. It's a process that gets you from high mortality, high fertility, low population, to low fertility, low mortality, long life expectancy, big population, but flat population. And then we move into what I call demographic post modernity. And the difference between modernity and post-modernity is in modernity it's all about material conditions. So the richer you are, the more advanced you are, the more industrialized you are the, more you are, the farther you are through that transition. So we take 1900, Britain's already starting to see a fall in its fertility rate, its mortality rate's been coming down for years. Germany is probably about 20 or 30 years behind, Russia's 20 or 30 years behind that, much of the world beyond Europe's not even started. So you can almost predict where fertility and mortality and growth of population are by the material advance of the country. Then you get to the world where pretty much everybody is wealthy in the Western world. And in the undeveloped countries, even though they're still poor, resources have been poured into the basics of getting infant mortality down and keeping people alive. So a country like India today, even though it's very poor compared to America, it's advancing has quite a small life expectancy difference to America. Mm -hmm. So what I call late modernity, we're catching up, we're pushing the poor forward so that even quite backward countries are getting to the point where they're getting very low mortality rates, long life expectancy, and very often quite poor countries have got low fertility rates as well. India's not much above two, much of North Africa's two or three. So we've rushed the poor world towards the end of the modernity process. Much of the world... Almost all the world outside sub Saharan Africa now has relatively low fertility rates. One or two exceptions Pakistan, Afghanistan, but it's falling rapidly there. Pretty low fertility rates, long life expectancy, and global population is starting to flatten out. So that's your, we've all got to Denmark. We're now at the end of demographic history. But I think what post-modernity is about is not the material conditions which drove modernity. It's ideology. It's what people believe. It's their culture. And what I think we're going to see in the post-modern world is everybody wants to live long. Everybody will have long life expectancy. That won't be that interesting. Short of a pandemic, we know pandemics come along. This one hasn't had that much effect on the demographic data. But essentially, we'll all be living long. The big difference will be the societies and the culture where women on average have one child and those where they have three or four, even once they've reached modern conditions. And I suppose the exemplars of that are Japan and other countries in Eastern Asia and South Europe, where fertility rates are very low. Currently, the only country with an advanced economy, highly educated, highly literate, and yet bouncing back in terms of fertility is Israel, where women have three children. Mm -hmm. So that may be an example of the future. But within the United States, for example, there are communities like the Hutterite, like the Mormons, which have a high fertility rate. And that's not because they're poor or because they're backward or because they're urban or rural. It's actually because of what they believe. So I think the future will belong So those societies or countries or communities within countries, which on the one hand can retain a high fertility rate, and on the other hand, have a low attrition rate and manage to keep a lot of people within their society or community.
1: I think the story is you have this Malthusian equilibrium, right? Where, as you say, life is short, nasty, and brutish, and you have high mortality rates. People do have a lot of babies, but they don't survive. And then we go through this phase where much higher fertility that corresponds to economic growth. But then when economic growth continues, we settle into this new equilibrium where the fertility rate is quite low. Now, I think it's, it's a little bit puzzling, right? There's a period in time For most of human history, where the wealthier you were and the more resources you had access to, the more offspring you would have, or at least the more surviving offspring you would have. And that was true in the Malthusian era, where the wealthy and the aristocrats would have way more surviving offspring, but also across countries when you're going through this industrial revolution where the English had way more surviving offspring than pretty much anyone else on the planet. But now we're in this world where there's negative correlation, right? Where the wealthier you are, the fewer kids you have, and I think biologists would be hard pressed to figure out why this is happening, right? <laughs> you know, if, if you gave horses and, and pigs and dogs and cats access to like much better health care and resources, like they would just have way more offspring, and I don't think that they would ever consider reducing the number of of offspring. There's economic explanations and there's also cultural explanations, and, and I think you, you talk about both of them, but, but I think that's the big mystery for economic historians. Is it really about economics and investment in the ROI of offspring, or is it about culture and, and preferences and, and that sort of thing? What's, what accounts for this breakdown in, in the correlation and actually the flipping of the correlation in, between wealth and fertility?
0: It is a complex story, and it's got, as you say, both material and cultural elements in it. So traditionally, the better off were able to... Let's assume people roughly had the same number of kids, an uncontrolled fertility. And the rich were able to keep their kids alive. And so there was a... This is the Gregory Clark stuff. There was a... I think you've interviewed him. There was a downward social mobility Mm -hmm. because... The rich had more kids, the poor had the same number, but they died off. So there, there were only so many positions at the top of society. And that was probably pretty true, pretty much true of most societies. Then you get to the point where a couple of things happen. First of all, society gets richer and the poor are able to keep their kids alive. At the same time, and it different countries, different places, different paces, but Edwardian England's a good example. Control of fertility tends to start at the top and work its way down. So access to contraception—it was often quite expensive, or you needed to know about it. You needed education. So very often in societies, it's the wealthier that start using contraception, and it filters down. And there's something I call the eugenesis moment, and we saw it in Britain in about 1900, and we saw it in Singapore in about 1980, when the rich are not having many kids and the poor are. And the panic is not we're going to be too many or too few, but the quality of the stock is going to go down. That's the Mm -hmm. term that was used because the best sort of people aren't breeding and the worst sort are. So in Britain, we saw lots of newspaper articles in Edwardian England about these sorts of issues. In Singapore, famously, they were sending their graduates off on love cruises to encourage them to have more <laughs> kids, trying to get the less uh, well-educated to have fewer. But actually, that's just a phase. And now in Singapore, everyone has few children. Mm-hmm. So that kind of low fertility works its way through because access to contraception. I think there is probably a natural human desire to control one's fertility, there is the good old-fashioned economic argument about return on investment. If fewer kids, you can invest in them in a society where education, investment in children actually yields results as opposed to living in an agricultural society where more children are often beneficial. Eventually, everyone gets there in terms of low fertility. So that kind of works through the society from the top to the bottom, effectively. Then what matters? Then the material story is over, if you like and what comes to matter then is people's values and that what ma- in terms of people's values i think that's more interestingly and more incisively examined when you think about ideology and religion and culture than when you think about class and socioeconomic
1: conditions for a biologist this would seem puzzling right because th- there may have been a time where if you had a child who is more educated capable of earning more income, particularly if they were male, that then you would have kind of more grandchildren, but that doesn't seem to be true. In fact, the more you educate your offspring, the fewer grandchildren you'll expect to have. So one one would expect over time, this appetite for education would disappear and we would develop a preference for uneducated children and we would start investing less in them.
0: If you're talking about biology, animals are not programmed to want to have lots of progeny. Animals are programmed to want to have lots of sex, Mm -hmm. and my suggestion is not that human beings have overcome that, although there is some evidence of a decline in human sexuality, but rather that humans have very cleverly learned to decouple sex and having children. The biology, in a sense, breaks down. So we're biologically programmed to consume a lot of sugar or a lot of food when we get the chance. And then when we're in a world of surfeit, this gives rise to problems of obesity. Similarly, we're programmed, not, as I say, to have lots of offspring, but to have lots of sex. And when you find you can decouple that because of clever technology, which we've figured out how to do and animals haven't, then you find you have a problem of low fertility, if you think that is a problem. And I do think a lot of societies are suffering already and will continue to suffer from too few people. So too few people. There's plenty of human mass out there, if you like. We're getting bigger, but we're getting fewer.
1: Yeah. And I think this idea of fertility management, look, this has been around as long as humans have, have been around. And it's not the invention of the pill or some technology. There is delaying marriage. There's refraining from, from sex altogether. There's maintaining breastfeeding for for longer periods versus shorter periods humans have had the capacity to manage fertility and i studied french history and you know it's kind of obvious that the french figured out a way to kind of manage their fertility long before the invention of fertility technologies do we fail to appreciate that fertility has been a choice it's humans aren't robotically automatons that are going to crank out children when it's not desirable, right? Hasn't birth control been with us as long as we've been humans? Actually, you
0: can answer that question by looking at the story of Thomas Malthus, because Malthus wrote four versions of his great work on uh, the principles of population. And the first one was more or less a sort of model which said, we'll always breed, we'll always have loads of kids, we'll push things to the limit, but the limit is always going to be there, the limit's moving slowly, our ability to breed is really strong, so we're always going to get pushed back. That was Malthus one, which I think was 1798. In his second edition, and then he varied it in the third and fourth, but two, three, and four are pretty similar, he awoke to the fact that whilst this was an insightful model, it wasn't actually reality. And that if you looked around the world, if you traveled, if you examined travelers, if you looked at the records from Norway to North America to China, societies and cultures have different ways of dealing with fertility and different ways of controlling it. So, indeed, in Catholic France, it would seem France is almost an exception to the European pattern in the 19th century. But as you say, they do see it seems as if the canny French peasant figured out better how to control his and her fertility in the 19th century than others did. We have just got better at doing it. And uh, instead of uh, a lot of superstition, some efficient ideas, word of mouth, books being published in Victorian England that were then banned, everything is super available. Su- that Everyone understands how to manage their fertility. So it's obviously wrong to say that we were in a world of totally unmanaged fertility historically. Even the ancient Egyptians had some contraception, and we know they were into uh, infanticide if you read the book of Exodus. But it's the the simplicity and the reliability of the technology since the 60s which has changed the whole realm of fertility.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that public figures, politicians, were probably a lot more concerned about demographic issues in the past than they are in the present you talked about how the folks in germany were worried about the increasing number of russians and the french were worried about the increasing number of germans and the english were concerned about the decline in their fertility but felt emboldened by the availability of the canadians and the australians backing them up for most of human history this tide has been impossible to to stop basically bigger countries with more people ultimately wind up dominating smaller countries with smaller populations and when you zoom out and you do this kind of this big picture analysis countries have always worried about the sizes of their populations Because presumably the productivity would ultimately even out. So there were these brief shining moments when small countries like Holland and and later England were able to, to dominate with their small populations. But the equilibrium seems to be bigger populations carry the day, right? So let's talk about
0: two things then. First of all, the political attitudes to demography, which you raised, the views and the worries and the concerns of the people who run countries and sometimes their populations. And then let's talk a little bit about the relationship between demography and power. As far as the size of populations are concerned, that's certainly been the case that rulers have worried about that since ancient history, and they've seen a decline in population as a sign of national...
1: Even the Romans were concerned about the fertility of the Germans, right?
0: Yeah, the Romans and the ancient Greeks were worried, and you can trace it back. And probably because a basically underpopulated world called out for more people very often. And of course, armies armies were often in the battlefield and technological advances were slow. So very often, groups were more or less at a, a similar level technologically, although of course, things like the chariot came along and so on. I think the difference with today is that a discussion of fertility is really difficult for politicians. I think we live in an era when this is a very sensitive issue. I think, first of all, people want to be sensitive to those who can't have children. I think any suggestion of increasing the number of one ethnic group versus another ethnic group Seen as being extremely politically incorrect. So I think politicians choose their words very, very carefully and most easily don't choose words at all, particularly since in the Western world, we are not fielding mass armies against each other as once we were. So it's not an immediate military worry. And the problem of a lack of people to fill jobs, lack of people in the economy, which we might come on to is not something which fixing fertility now is going to help you. So Boris Johnson, who's famous for having a large number of children by a, a fairly large number of women, possibly more children than he's prepared to admit to, but he's been a bit vague about it but anyway. If, if Boris Johnson were suddenly to brilliantly change the fertility rate in Britain, and, and the average woman in Britain started having three children or four children because Boris found the magic key to raising fertility rate, if that's what he wanted to do, the benefits in terms of more labour in the economy would not be coming through For decades, so there's very little in it for politicians really to do much about the fertility rate. In terms of power and what really drives power, as I said, if you're looking back historically, where you've got countries with similar levels of technological development, the military development numbers really matter. But when you get uneven development fields, so Britain in the late 19th century, or with its Maxim gum of the OM. More or less along the lines of whatever happens, we've got Maxim, and they have not, could go out and dominate large parts of the world. Um, not quite so easy to dominate other European countries, got this technology quite quick. But where you didn't have a big technological gap, as in the case of the First World War, you had big arm grinding against each other and numbers were mattered. But you do have exceptions. So, for example, Japan was able to dominate China. It was the Japanese running around China, terrorizing the Chinese and not vice versa in the 1930s. uh, Because Japan had figured out how to get the Western model before China did. Mm -hmm. And think of it is about sufficiency and necessity. Because history, there are always so many complex causes. And to say, oh, this country's powerful because it's got big population. If you look at who's like Russia, very much part of Russia's rise to prominence was the rise of its population. And then as its population began to fall and then its population has begun to fall, I think that's an important part of Russia's decline as a great power.
1: So while politicians probably aren't going to worry explicitly or maybe even implicitly about population size, I think everyone does worry about the age profile of our societies. And at least for now, we're seeing a um, hollowing out of the kind of age profile in a lot of developed countries. Japan is the poster child, or I should say the poster senior citizen for this phenomenon. And I think that Germany's admission of all the 1 million refugees from Syria was clearly an effort to uh, address the balance migration has always served as a way of bolstering the the population of different countries and even the, the Roman empire part of its success was its ability to absorb and kind of romanify or romanize the folks who entered their boundaries and the US is really exceptionally good at this is this going to be going forward something that every country is going to have to learn how to do well obviously not every country could be a net importer of people, but some will probably have to in order to deal with the, the pension crises, right?
0: Well, I think there are different approaches that can be taken. Immigration is the quick fix. Long, it's a very long-term fix, as I was saying, to get your fertility rate up. So yes, Germany ships people in. Yes, we do in the UK. In the US, you've obviously got a very long tradition of taking in immigrants and turning them into Americans. But that's not what everybody wants to do. The Japanese, it would seem, are determined to maintain the pure Japanese-ness of their state as they perceive it. They are not interested in receiving immigrants in any large numbers. They're certainly having more than they had, but not that many. A country like China, when it gets short of people, is going to find it really difficult to hoover in enough people. I mean, when you just take the size of the country to make up for these deficiencies in fertility. And there are some cultures and some countries which are better at absorbing people than others. I mean, because English is the global language, because the sphere has imprinted its culture on the world in a way, it's much easier for people from high-fertility countries, the countries that are still high-fertility, to come to France, as well as well, England, United States, Australia and France, say, Francophone Africa being the recipient of French culture, than it is for, for someone from Mali or Uganda to say, I'm going to become Japanese. So what I think you end up with is something, again, I talk about it in my new book, People, that I call a trilemma, which is you can have two but not three of uh, certain goods, if you consider them goods. And I use the example of Britain, Israel, and Japan. In Britain, we have a buoyant economy, or we've had a relatively buoyant economy, by continuing to have large uh, numbers of immigrants, having a low fertility rate. So we've got low fertility and high immigration. We've kept our economy going, and we've enjoyed the benefits, of they are benefits of small families, people not having to get up too often in the night to change the nappies, if you like. But what we sacrifice, if you think it's a sacrifice, some don't, is the con- continuity of ethnicity. So there's a, and this is a sensitive subject to discuss. But if you look back in 1970, over 95% of people in the British Isles were of British. Or Irish extraction. I was born in 1964. My parents were immigrants. I was a very unusual child in London, relatively statistically, and certainly in the UK, to be the child of immigrants. Today it would be much more normal. So Britain has kept its small families, buoyant economy by having immigration, and effectively it has given away its homogeneity. Japan has chosen to keep the homogeneity. And also to keep the small families, but its economy has definitely suffered. And it's interesting with Japan that the economy really took a knock in the late, very late 80s, early 90s, when the workforce started to decline. So that's been the Japanese choice. And the Israeli choice has been to have larger families and to keep the economy buoyant of course they've had a lot of immigration they don't really need that immigration anymore but they have done the hard yards of the israeli family the israeli parents have been getting up in the night for that second child that third child that fourth child and all the hard work i mean i think the benefit but the joys of parenthood are enormous and and personally i would if you you can have two out of the three of the small family the buoyant economy and the ethno continuity, if you want to call it that for better for one of a better term. But you can't have all three.
1: Well I found fascinating is this you mentioned this interwar experience of France, which took in what, two million immigrants from Italy and Spain and, and Poland to redress the the losses that they experienced during World War One. And I think that went relatively smoothly and they were successful at converting all of them into Frenchmen. And so one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that the percentage of the world that considers itself European has rose dramatically, but then has been falling substantially for the last couple of decades as countries like Nigeria and Kenya, they've seen their population grow 20, 30, 40 fold in the last century. Does this mean that the waves of immigrants coming over on, you know, inflatable rafts is just the tip of the iceberg? Should we expect to see massive relocations of population? I mean, if we look at what happened in the 18th century and the 19th century, we just saw these massive movements of people from Europe to the Americas because of the disproportion in population densities and so forth. Should we just expect, in spite of any efforts that are made by folks in Europe to resist this, should we just expect it to be inevitable? Is the human tide unstoppable? Should we, we expect the surplus areas to, and the deficit areas to equalize?
0: Well, it was interesting as I heard you asking your question. The, I was waiting for the word inevitable. And you got you got there. I don't think anything in history is inevitable. I don't think it was inevitable that the Europeans would expand into the the wider world, but we've got used to the idea of a very European world. We've got used to the idea that California, Australia, and until not all that long ago, large parts of South Africa were very European in their origin. And we are now getting used to the idea that that's rolling back. That great 19th century expansion of Europeans, particularly West Europeans, particularly people from the British Isles, but then a sort of second and third tier behind that. So great immigration to the United States in the late 19th century, the early 20th century was not essentially from the British Isles. It was from places where the population was now growing very rapidly and people could get to ports and so on because of improved transports. We got very used to this idea of a very European world and we're going to have to get unused to it. But I don't think it's inevitable. I think the example I always think of, and this was, has been highlighted to me by my travels, is a country like Singapore. So Singapore is a tiny island state. It's incredibly wealthy. It's surrounded by two enormous countries relative to Singapore. Um, Malaysia is enormous relative to Singapore. Indonesia is enormous and relative to almost anywhere, with huge numbers of people who would probably love to go to Singapore, and going to Singapore would represent a real increase in their living standards. But Singapore is very strict in its control of immigration. Now, again, I'm not advocating that. I'm simply saying that if that's what Singapore chooses to do, Singapore with its very low fertility rate, its need for immigration, and Singapore has immigration, but Singapore decides where its immigrants Mm -hmm. come from. And it does not allow a great wave of legal or illegal immigrants to come in from uh, Malaysia or uh, Indonesia. Similarly, the United States has a very long border with Mexico, and it's uh, an area of contention how much should be invested in manning that border and building walls and so on. But I do think it's a question for the United States to choose, just as Japan has chosen. I talked about trilemmas, dilemmas suggest a choice. And I think the people of Europe have got that trilemma. I'm thinking particularly of Europe. The United States is slightly different, but in Europe, we do have a choice. Do we want to go the Japanese route of declining population, the hollowing out and emptying out, which has some real benefits as well as disbenefits, but means that you have to rely increasingly on technology to solve your labour shortages. Mm -hmm. Do we want to go the Israeli route of actually having more kids ourselves, so we don't need to import so many people? Or do we want to go the route which we have been going, Angela Merkel went, the UK has gone, of topping our numbers up more and more from people from outside europe i'm not advocating any one of those three routes but i think framing the problem framing the question in that way focuses people's minds i don't think it's inevitable i mean we're seeing today uh, and yesterday huge numbers of people potentially coming into poland from belarus now i don't exactly know what's been going on in belarus and how the belarusians have managed to attract all these people from afghanistan and syria But we are facing a position where the Poles, with the support of the EU or without, have to make a decision. And that decision may be to say, we in Poland have had two small families for too long, we're lacking people, we'll go the German route, let's get these people in. Uh, What they seem to be choosing is to say, no, we will have a controlled immigration system. We will decide who comes in. But then they will have to live with those consequences. If they don't want to let those immigrants in and they want to continue having very small families in Poland, then they will have to cope with the consequences.
1: Well, another thing that comes out in the book is this idea that warfare is really a young man's game and that the the average age of the population is in many ways um, an indicator of the kind of bellicosity of the country and that one of the reasons why the Soviets and the Americans were more or less defeated in Afghanistan may have been less to do with sheer numbers and more to do with just the gap in average age in in our countries. Youth will ultimately triumph when it comes to warfare. So does that mean that as these countries age out, we should expect less conflict? China is, is a great example. Everyone's super worried about China and invading Taiwan. I mean, if they're going to do it, do they need to do it soon? Because pretty soon, the Chinese are going to be too old to be going to war with anybody, the way their single child policy has worked.
0: Well, I read an article recently that was suggesting that actually they can wait because if you look at the fertility rate in Taiwan, there won't be anyone left in Taiwan <laughs> over time. So just to comment on Taiwan and China, and then we'll come back to that one of the arguments in the book is that the Chinese never needed to have their one-child policy. And if you look at the Chinese communities outside China, Taiwan being an example, the Chinese in Southeast Asia, and if you look at the Japanese, if you look at other South, other East Asian cultures, the, the Koreans would be a very good example. They all had drops in their fertility rate. China's fertility rate pretty much halved from roughly six to three in the 1970s, which is an extraordinarily fast rate of fall before they introduced the one-child policy. So Ch- China was going to have a, a much lower fertility rate without the, what I consider a uh, highly immoral coercion of the one-child policy. So although I tried to keep my values out of the demographic history and science, I do think one should say that kind of coercive policy is wrong, and it proved to be unnecessary. Clearly, both the United States and its NATO allies and the Soviet Union before had much bigger populations than Afghanistan and were able to field much larger armies. But I think when you get small, there's the behind zone theory that when you get small families, people are much less willing to lose sons. Mm-hmm. And I think more generally, aging societies do tend to be less bellicose. And so the will to fight wars in, say, Russia of the 1980s or America of the 2010s and 2020s is reduced Something like the Iraq War in Britain is seen as an absolute disaster. The willingness to field a significant force of young men in Iraq really wasn't there. Against that, you have these very young populations in Iraq and Afghanistan, not only very young, but much, much bigger than they were 50 or 70 years ago. The population of Afghanistan has hugely grown since the Soviets went in there in 79, never mind since the Brits were in there in the 1870s and 1880s. So there are just many more of them. And a lot of them are young men. They're very high percentages, young men. There aren't lots of older people with the restraining influence that older people often have. So there is a demographic element. It's, It's a good case to say just raw numbers don't make that much difference because we are bigger. NATO's a lot bigger than Afghanistan and the Soviet Union was. But the age structure, the size of families, this affects the mentality and the preparedness to to see things through. So again, I wouldn't w- want to say that the story of Afghanistan is entirely a demographic story. But I think if you're trying to tell that story and you're trying to tell the story of why it was that neither Soviet socialism nor a Western-style capitalism were able to remold Afghanistan in their own image, then the story of demography should certainly be Uh, part of that.
1: And speaking of the Soviet Union, you talk a lot about how migration is important, not just across country boundaries, but within country boundaries. And in the old Soviet Union, there was certainly a lot of movement, particularly from the non-Russian speaking areas into the Russian speaking areas. And we're seeing that continue, but what I found most interesting about the Soviet story or the Russian story is that mortality rates between males and females can differ dramatically not just because of things like warfare, but also because of what we might call, I don't know, deaths of despair. Is there a better explanation for why life expectancies in post-Soviet Russia have declined so dramatically for males while more or less being unaffected for females?
0: Russia and the Soviet Union do represent a really interesting story. To start with the sort of flow of populations, then we'll come back to the differential of men and women. Russia is a kind of paradigm case of of the European breathe out, breathe in. So the assumption in 1900, say, was the Russians are expanding and they'll expand and expand. And the reason for that was Russia had got modernity. It was starting to industrialize. It was starting to see improvements in living standards, although goodness knows they were rudimentary enough. And you were starting to see a fall in mortality rates. And the Russian, the ethnic Russian population and associated Slavonic population were expanding enormously. That was taken for granted. These tiny populations in what was called Turkestan, Central Asia, and in the Caucasus were assumed to be forever unimportant. And the assumption was that the Russians would grow in terms of their numbers, in terms of their cultural influence. And after the revolution, although a lot changed, there was still that assumption there. And it was a real shock to the Russian communist establishment when they started to realize that after decades of the Russian, the ethnic Russians having a smaller fertility rate and the peoples of the Muslim, particularly the Muslims of the Caucasus and Central Asia, are continuing to have a high fertility rate and starting to get that wave of modernity, thanks, of course, in part to the, the efforts of the Soviet Union, that these were now becoming demographically much more significant and the great Russian movement out into the virgin lands as late as the 50s and that there'd been russians moving out out for decades from the 50s it was the last gasp and then that ended the soviet union collapsed a lot of russians came back from the so-called near abroad and there'd been huge flows of people from the former Soviet Union into Russia so that now I can't remember how many Muslims there are in Moscow and I think the numbers are probably disputed but it's a very large number. The book I think you said
1: 20%.
0: (laughs) I've read that there are sources that support that but now of course places like Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan have also started to move towards lay fertility so that will change over time but in the story of the Soviet Union in a way and the way the Russians expanded in the Soviet Union you can see the story of the Europeans in the the wider world. It's that story in, in a slightly smaller environment, but a pretty big one nevertheless. So far as the disparity of men and women life expectancy is concerned, the best explanation we have is exactly, as you say, deaths of despair, which I know people talked about now, Case and Dayton and in the United States, but a sense of a loss of meaning in their lives, challenge to masculine roles when you deindustrialize, and of course, industrial quantities of alcohol consumption, which seem to... Very, very significantly between men and women. Now, it appears that Russia's turned the corner there; that the mortality rates are are going down, the life expectancy is going up, and the difference between men and women is narrowing. But it's still been an incredibly uh, painful journey for Russia. And other countries have have much smaller gaps between male and female mortality rates to the point of those differences even disappearing. I think in Russia alone, it's a good example of a country whose story you cannot tell without telling the story of demography in many facets, both the demographic transition the uh, geography of and ethnicity, the different times at which the transition hits, and indeed, as you raised, the lap today day uh, disaster of high mortality rates among Russian men. And now, of course, very low, long, long, low fertility rates. Some evidence fertility rates are picking up in Russia. But again, when you've had decades and decades of sub-replacement fertility, it really begins to hit you. And Russia is noticing that in in places, the far east of Russia particularly, but not only in the far east, villages are being deserted. It's harder and harder to keep infrastructure going in places like Siberia, as there are fewer and fewer people to maintain it. Yes, the story of Russia and the Soviet Union, in a way, is a microcosm of the whole story of the
1: human tide. This recent pandemic must have been a, offered a field day for demographers, right? Because there's so much attention being brought to databases that no one ever really cared about, like excess deaths. And and there's been a great deal of attention paid to who is impacted by this the most. And we're seeing these big impacts in these old countries like Italy and France and, and like Spain with relatively minor impacts on countries like Nigeria that, that have a pretty young population. And do you think that First of all, is it good for demographers to have all this attention paid to these mortality figures and so forth? To someone who studies the long durée, this must be a bit of a tempest in a teapot, right? Probably the total deaths due to this pandemic are smaller than the total number of lives saved by malaria interventions in the last 10 years. This can't be anything more than just a minor blip like the you know, Russian flu of the 18, 1880s, right. In the grand scheme of things. Well, is the average life expectancy affected well, anything, in any anything, major way by, by this?
0: Anything that throws the light on demography and uh, gives demographers a platform is good news as far as I'm concerned. So I'm glad it's got attention, but obviously as a pandemic, it's very bad news. So um, don't get me wrong on that. In terms of the impact on numbers, I think there are two things. Obviously there's mortality and this fertility. So on the mortality side, the numbers of people who died of COVID or the excess mortality, which reflects other things, like in the UK, we've got neglected health problems and delayed hospitalisation. Although those numbers are relatively high, those affected are very old on the whole. So what that means is rather than just looking at the total loss of life, it's worth looking at the lost years. Now, if you compare that to the Spanish flu, which affected younger people, that has a very different effect. It it's worth putting the deaths in the con in context. For example, in Syria, if you look at the Syrian civil war, I'm just to change subjects for a moment, the deaths in the civil war, which are horrendous, are still only a year or two of population growth in Syria. What what's happened in Syria, of course, has been a huge outflux of people. So a quarter of the population's left, a quarter of the population's been displaced. But it is worth seeing these sorts of things in that sort of context. So mortality-wise, it's not, and again, I don't mean to uh, diminish the personal tragedies that people have suffered, but it's not going to have a significant effect on global numbers particularly because those affected are relatively old and certainly not fertile in their fertile years Hmm. so from a mortality perspective i think we can yeah it will knock a year or two off life expectancy here and there it'll bounce back it's not not really uh, all that meaningful from a statistical point of view on the mortality side and the life expectancy side what i think is more interesting as a demographer is the impact on fertility There have been countries such as the Philippines, where it's been suggested that a disruption in the um, supply of contraception has led to a baby boom. But in most countries, certainly in the developed world, uh, there seems to have been a drop-off fertility, as people have – the best explanation is probably – that people don't want to go to hospital. And there seems to have been quite a drop-off of fertility. We'll see more. The 2020 data is really not going to be very much affected because if people made decisions, COVID-based decisions, to delay having children, they wouldn't have done that before March or April. So it's only in, in the 2021 data that we're really going to see what the impact has been. But it seems to have been quite significant in quite a lot of countries. The question then is how quickly will it bounce back? And I have a gut feeling that it will not bounce back quickly. So it has been a downward drag on something that was already falling. I do not think we're going to see a catch-up uh, fertility boon. That's just my gut feeling. At the same time that this has happened, we've had a whole new realm of discussion about the environment and not having kids and saving the planet another consumer which maybe we 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 can talk about but whether again whether it's good or it's bad i think it's mixed up with the delays in fertility around covid and we may find that that many young couples instead of putting another child or a first child off don't have one at all so i feel it will play into a generally low-fertility environment in the next few years. I don't know what's going to turn that round, but as people are more and more concerned about the environment, particularly young people who are of the age to have children, as they're still probably a bit wary of the medical system and not wanting to go into hospitals or have medical appointments, I guess at the same time, weddings have been delayed, and although we live in a not very traditional, many of our societies are not very... Some societies are traditional, and people don't have children until they get married. And in other societies, even though they're not traditional, very often marriages are triggered for mm-hmm. children. So putting off weddings, people haven't been hooking up in the way they would have been with nightclub shut and so on. So the whole raft of reasons why, as long as COVID's around and people are worried about it, the fertility rate is down. And I think it will uh, stay down mm-hmm. for
1: the foreseeable. So general anxiety and uncertainty will presumably also delay family formation. So it may, it may be that the number of years- yes lost to COVID due to lives never created in the first place might dwarf the number of years of life lost due to infections by COVID.
0: That is my belief, although very difficult to calculate now, and it will probably always be difficult to calculate, if only because if there is a drop-off in fertility, it'd be really hard to say how much of that is attributable directly to COVID and how much to other things.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So Paul, I want to turn now to the new book, Tomorrow's People, Future of Humanity in 10 Numbers. Each chapter, you start off with a number. And some of these numbers were really surprising to me, including the one around how many old people there are in Japan, right? Is Japan the future? Are we all, is everyone in the developing world headed that direction? And then I guess even in the developing world with a bit of a delay, although these delays, <laughs> you know, are accelerated and the developing world is latching on to these trends, Much more quickly than the developed worlds ever did? Or is the whole world going to be, you know, Japan at some point where you've got this relatively flat demographic profile and we're going to have as many 80 year olds as we do eight year olds in our population? Not necessarily.
0: There are a couple of places where they seem to be pushing against that. So I've mentioned Israel, which is a tiny country, but a very interesting case of a highly developed country where people do have three kids each. Sri Lanka is a really interesting case and, and not much looked at or or examined. I, look, I wrote a chapter about Sri Lanka in an earlier book I wrote about demographic engineering. But Sri Lanka has got towards two children per woman and stayed there for decades. So you can hit a sweet spot, well, a goldilocks if you like two to three and not necessarily go down further it is falling a little bit but it's been pretty flat for a long time so there's perhaps a Sri Lankan model which is yes much poorer than Israel and not as high a fertility rate but a reasonable uh, replacement fertility rate for a very long period of time sub-saharan Africa obviously has far too high a fertility rate at the moment but there's no reason to think that the sub-saharan Africans will necessarily once they get down from six to five to four to three, that they will necessarily go sub two. There may be things in African culture which are genuinely pronatal. It's too early to say. Southern Africa has a pretty low fertility rate, but it hasn't really got much below replacement level. So it could be that sub-Saharan Africa, for example, follows the Sri Lankan route and doesn't go down to one, stays at two to three for a long time. So that's at a national level, the answer. And then to get back to where we started this conversation, if you go below the national level and you look at individual communities, a friend of mine, Eric Kaufman, wrote a book about 10 years ago, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And he was making the argument there, and I was saying at the start of this discussion, that there are communities that keep very high fertility rate, the Haredi Jews in the States and parts of Europe, the Hutterites, the, and to some extent, the Mormons. These are kind of extreme examples. I think we don't necessarily need to see the world as the ultra-religious and the ultra-secular. It is possible that there will be people in between culturally. There will be groups and communities that are able and willing to have two or three children to sustain themselves and not necessarily plunge into a super low fertility rate forever. And again, this is something which Eric Kaufman's talked about, draw my attention to, and I know relatively little bit about, but there is some hypothesis around that there is something like a pronatal gene. And that if that's the case, if a love of children and a love of having children and bring them into the world is actually genetic it hasn't shown up yet because we haven't really controlled our f- fertility that we could have the antinatalists deselecting themselves and we could actually find that in i don't know how many i'm not a biologist i'm not a, an expert on evolution i don't know how many generations it would take but ultimately we might find that the human communities who do reproduce themselves are not just culturally predisposed to do so but are maybe biologically predisposed to do so as well
1: When we look at China, everyone is talking about how China is taking over the world. It is the new superpower, that there's this huge shift in gravity towards China. But in some sense, China's living on borrowed time in terms of the demography. And that's not to say, of course, that China couldn't increase its power if its GNP per capita continues to rise, but the numbers don't look good. And you mentioned that India is going to overtake China as the most populous country in the world fairly soon. And so will China look like Japan?
0: For the first time ever, actually. That will be the first time that China has ever not been the most populous country, Mm -hmm. since you could even talk of countries 2,000 years ago. So this is not completely new. I mean, someone like Richard Haas, interestingly, was early in on the game in talking about the issues for China. Obviously, China's got a huge population and will have a huge population for a very long time, although not forever if it continues at its current fertility rate. And as we know, they've dropped the one-child policy and they're still not having that many children. But this essential view that China has got a lot of population decline in the works, that its population is aging, and actually very recently, like in the last few years, its median age has just passed that of America. So the median Chinese is now slightly older than the median American. And from a sort of power politics point of view, what's so interesting, and which Haas pointed out, I think 10 or 12 years ago, is that, first of all, America has a relatively high fertility rate, although it's fallen since then. But among the developed countries, America has one on the higher end. And then, of course, for good or ill, America can attract vast migration. America is a great machine for creating Americans. We don't see people flocking to migrate to China. That's not to say it will never happen. It's hard to imagine people being manufactured uh, en masse as Chinese. So from that perspective, there is no doubt that the United States has an advantage. I don't think that's just any more about manning an army because China, even with its aging and its declining fertility rate, will be able to man a massive army for a very, very long time. But I think it does take some of the dynamism out of the Chinese economy. I think we could see, you know, we're in this post-COVID period. There's a lot of disruption because of the Ukraine war. But we could see a long, slow depression in China. We could see big economic consequences. Just as in the late 80s we thought the future belonged to Japan, it may be that we're going to say in the late 2010s it looked like the future belonged to China and what went wrong. And a big part of what will have gone wrong will have been the fact that once China was full of thrusting young people with all the good and bad things of that, but it does create a certain dynamism and with the right governance it creates a demographic dividend in the economy. And that China could have all the woes of somewhere like Japan in terms of stagnation, but of course stagnating a lot earlier in terms of progress, so China would be a poorer country. And undoubtedly that will diminish Chinese power.
1: Now, the other thing I thought about was when you step back and you look at history from above and look at it from the long-term, then there are certain pressures that build up that are impossible to ignore. So I interviewed someone recently about the steppes versus the settled agriculture and how it was inevitable that all of these tribes from the steppes would flow into the European plains and flow into China. So is the shift in demographics away from countries like Japan towards the African continent, does this create population pressure buildup where it's just inevitable, like the dikes of Holland? Sooner or later, if the population of Holland gets so low that they can't maintain these dikes, the ocean is just going to overwhelm them. I mean, when you look at Japan, they don't allow any immigration. If this were the Middle Ages, we would say they're just going to get invaded. They're going to just get taken over.
0: I'm a soft inevitabilist. I just made that term up, but I don't believe that you can, from the demography, read the history. So the way I put it recently was if you told me everything I could possibly know about the demography of 1920 or 1930... You can't then predict the Second World War and the rise of Adolf Hitler, right? So demography is not the only thing you need to know. So I'm not a hard determinist, but the reason I'm a soft determinist is I think the fact that Africa is going to have a booming population and the only place in the world that's going to be having a booming population will be really important. Now, how will it be really important? I think that the culture of the world, the music of the world, the food of the world, a lot of the soft stuff is going to be much more African when there are six or seven Africans for every European rather than two Europeans for every African. It cannot but be a different world in which Africa features more prominently and Europe features less prominently. I think, inevitably, that has some effect on power policy, power, comma, policy, the balance of power. But I don't think it means, therefore, the Italians aren't breeding, every cohort's two-thirds of the size of the last one, Italy will empty out, the Africans will flow in. There are two reasons I don't think that. First of all, I don't think these lower fertility rates, there's no light at the end of the tunnel for countries like Italy, or serbia or russia at the moment their fertility rate has russians gone up a bit but the idea of it getting back to replacement we can't see. but if we take a very long view that could change nobody saw the post-war baby boom for example standing in 1935 when fertility rates were very low malthus didn't see his whole system the system that he described exactly as he described it just about to be turned on its head by the Industrial Revolution. So in the longish term, sort of 70, 80 years, an awful lot could change. That's one thing. The other thing is I don't think that... It's inevitable because we are short of people and because Africa is full of them, for example, that we have to have mass immigration. I think it's a choice. I think borders can be controlled. It's ultimately a matter of policy. It's a matter of choice. I'm not an inevitabilist and I'm not a determinist or someone who thinks we're just going to have to suck it up. I think it could be that we say we don't want these large populations. We don't want large families. We don't want the bother of rearing our own children we do want a relatively dynamic economy we do want people to look after us when we're old and people to clear the bins and so on therefore we must have immigration or people might say we'll take the economic hit we'll wait for the robots to come over the horizon we'll hope for the best and in the meanwhile we'll extemporize and we'll do without the people and that's obviously how japan is coping and no surprise japan is in the forefront of the rise of the robots so i think all we might say we might say let's go back to having larger families and this is the trilemma I talk about the sort of is the Israeli solution is we'll have bigger families. The Japanese solution is we'll stick to our ethnic continuity and we'll just cope with the lack of people. And the UK and, and US solution is that we won't have bigger families and we're not prepared to take the economic hit, ship them in. I think the main thing is, from a political point of view, that people understand that's the trilemma we face and that we have an intelligent debate about that without all the hysteria about replacement theory or. That's fascist or politically incorrect. Time to have a grown-up discussion of these things. Have this discussion and make these choices as democracies.
1: Otherwise, what is the point of democracy? And one of the things I found interesting is that the fertility rates in Mexico and Latin America have declined dramatically. And when Trump was building his wall, he's building it at the exact moment where it no longer would be a binding constraint in the sense that the demographic pressures in Latin America have more or less disappeared at this point.
0: Whether a wall is the right thing is another question, but the fertility rates are still relatively high south of Mexico, where most of the immigration is now coming through Mexico from Guatemala, Honduras. Even there, the fertility rate's down a lot, but those countries are sufficiently poor and they have a lot of people in their 20s who'd like to come to the US. So I don't think it's true to say that there's no pressure from Latin America anymore. I think there the light is there at the end of the tunnel because we can see those population growth numbers coming down and the potential for economic development. Whether the wall is the right way to control it or whether you want to control it at all, that's exactly the sort of thing that we should be having a political debate about in a calm manner.
1: I think in the United States, there's quite a bit of support for immigration, right, in businesses. And there's a demand for labor that's very difficult to suppress, regardless of the nativist tendencies of so many Americans. And so I think the future of America is probably going to be a lot more African. There was a time when American population was, I think, 22% African. And now it's, you know, been pushed down to about 11% in terms of ethnic origins. I could see that number going up substantially because where else would immigration come from if the U.S. is going to be looking for it? Africa is the logical place for... What happened with that
0: decline of the black share of the population, of course, was the enormous European immigration of the late 19th and early 20th century. As long as there's a big economic gap between the U.S. and Latin America... Even if Latin America has got much lower fertility rates, you'd still think plenty of Latin Americans would want to come. But for the world as a whole, the only place that will be really having significant population growth after the next 20 or 30 years when demographic momentum has worked through is going to be sub-Saharan Africa. That is going to be the last reservoir, if you like, of surplus human beings. And people will have to Either draw from that reservoir if it is indeed available, if Africans wish to leave, or they will have to cope with
1: falling populations. Now, another observation which you talk about in the book is this idea that the aging population is going to be less violent, right? You describe your time in Catalonia and there was this secession movement and there really weren't a whole lot of people out in the streets engaging in violent revolution. So, does the aging of the population foretell peaceful times ahead or will violence continue to be something that is limited to, I guess, sub-Saharan Africa, where the population still is going to be fairly young?
0: Well, in this respect, the timing of the book was a bit unfortunate because my general argument was old countries are much less likely to go to war. And the book was published in March 2022. Right. Fortunately, this, perhaps its redeeming feature in this respect was it was, it, the cover was sort of Ukrainian blue and yellow colors. First of all, there's no guarantees that old means peaceful. But there is a correlation. That's just social science. Nobody said older countries would never go to war.
1: Russia's kind of running out of soldiers, right? I mean, isn't Russia struggling to find the personnel to throw into this conflict?
0: Russia has a real shortage of young men. I do believe that the war in Ukraine and Russia cannot carry on in the way that a war in Syria or Yemen does. With an almost limitless supply of young men i think the social pressures and the simple lack of the young men is a constraining factor. the other fact is we in the west are very focused on ukraine so we're very focused on this exceptional case of relatively old relatively developed countries going to war with each other and that sort of strikes us but the very fact that it is so exceptional and we're focusing so much on it actually distorts the overall picture, which is that there's a lot more war and a lot more loss of life in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, where populations are still fairly small. To come back to Catalonia, I mean, it very much struck me because I spend a lot of time in French Catalonia, which is um, Roussillon. I go over the border quite a lot. And as you say, I sort of recount in the book going there and after the referendum, nothing kicked off. Now, it was interesting. I contrasted that with Sri Lanka, say, Mm -hmm. in the early 80s. In the early 80s, the Tamils wanted to break away. And I thought, what would the similar effect be in Catalonia? And the answer would be, there would be some attack on a police convoy or something military up in the Pyrenees, because Catalonia is quite mountainous, just like the Tamils attacked some army installation and then there were revenge attacks on the tamils in colombo and there would have been something similar in barcelona and you could see how it would have kicked off and i do think in catalonia where the median age is well into the 40s it was much much less likely to happen than somewhere like Sri Lanka back in the early 80s, when I would guess the median age was still in the 20s. People in their 40s, where the median age is in the 40s, it has a restraining effect on younger people. People in their 40s have got other things to do, other priorities. And however strong their political intentions or desires or goals, they are much less likely to throw everything caution to the wind and throw their lives and their livelihoods into the cause. And I think the data just proves that an anecdote proves If We look around the world, it is the young places that are violent. It's the
1: young places that are criminal. Now, Sri Lanka is a place that you're very familiar with. I think in your book, Demographic Engineering, you spent some time talking about Sri Lanka and to what extent is demographic engineering really feasible in the modern world? Yes, China as a totalitarian society was able to enforce a one-child policy. But it's a lot harder for them to kind of order people to have babies. That's a hard thing to mandate. To what extent are states capable of promoting fertility? I mean, would subsidies make a difference? Suppose Norway wants to have more babies. How much money would they have to give people? It seems like it's the cultural norm and maybe we can talk about this, but the preferences that people have, particularly the preferences that women have regarding careers and so forth, this seems like something that's very difficult to overcome.
0: So I think states really can make a difference in helping people on the way down, as it were. If you are developing and if your women are becoming more educated, then spreading contraception is going to help bring your fertility rate down. Promotion, there are all sorts of things you can do as a government, uh, which absolutely do not Im- involve the kind of coercion that China got involved in.
1: Yeah, it was interesting you described Romania, where Romania, what they did is they were able to prevent certain parts of the population from using birth control, and then they would allow the other parts of the country to have access to it.
0: Yeah. They broadly wanted more Romanians. They were kind of more relaxed about Hungarians using birth control and Germans and Jews leaving the country. So they had a kind of ethnic goal there. I think the two big problems with, say, a Norway, that's a good example. That Norway doesn't have such low fertility like Scandinavia. It's on the better end, but it's still a bit low. But a country like Norway, say Italy or, I don't know, Greece, I think there are two problems in them trying to get the fertility rate up and working against the general flow. The first of those problems is that there's a real cultural resistance. I think it's really hard. In America, everyone starts waving their copies of The Handmaid's Tale at the first suggestion that we might want people to have more children. So there's a cultural resistance. Oh, you're just trying to send women back to the kitchen barefoot and all that. And so I think it has to be done in a very sensitive way that acknowledges it's as much a man's job as a woman's job. And also, interestingly, we can point out that it's in countries where women have the ability to combine work and childbearing, and where that's actually encouraged, and where people are relaxed about sort of traditional things like marriage, whether children are born in or out of, those are the societies, interestingly, in the developed world, which have better fertility rates. The worst fertility rates are in the countries where women get the education, they don't get the opportunity to combine motherhood with work, and we're out of wedlock childbirth is very low so actually we can make pronatalism a a progressive cause but it's quite difficult to do it but there is material there but the second thing besides the kind of progressive resistance is the fact and you kind of alluded to it you have to throw an awful lot of money at this the two countries that have really tried are hungary and russia obviously russia not democratic at all and hungary questionably so And the record is not all that clear. They're spending a lot of money. And in Hungary, in both countries, the fertility rate's gone up a bit. In Hungary, funnily enough, it's mostly gone up by more people having ones and twos rather than threes and all the money's in the third. So there's some empirical evidence. It's not really worked in Hungary. In Russia, it's bounced back a fair bit. But neither of these countries, and in no country where it's been tried, Has fertility gone anywhere near the 2.2 or 2.1 you need for replacement? So for sure, the kind of decline you're going to end up getting if you get your fertility rate up to 1.8 is not nearly as bad as the kind of decline you're going to get if you've got your fertility down at 1.3. So it's worth trying. But I feel very strongly that the number of children you have is ultimately a cultural, Mm -hmm. not an economic thing. The fact is that people say, I can't afford to have children, you know, it's impossible in today's economic circumstances, and the government needs to incentivize me more. But interestingly, when our ancestors were much poorer, they had much bigger families. And where in the world today are people having the biggest families in the poorest countries? So I think it's got a lot to do with expectations and attitudes. And the big families in the developed world today are had by people with specific sets of religious ideals, which the US is a good example of that. You have Amish, you have Hutterites, you have a lot of Haredi Jews. A country like Italy doesn't have any of those groups. But in the United States, you have seen emerge those currently small groups, which combine living in the developed world and often having relatively high incomes with, i.e. not living on the conditions of Chad or Niger, with quite big families. And yet that may be where the future lies. But if you speak to those people, and I've spent quite a lot of time speaking to particularly Orthodox Jews about the subject and Israelis, it's all about values. It's not about economic incentives. And I am skeptical that in a particular environment, throwing a lot of government money at the problem is gonna solve it.
1: This was the most interesting insight I think in the book because for an economist, the prior is that this is a decision around economics, right? Children are expensive. You have to spend a lot of money if you want them to be successful. If you want them to be an attractive mate, you have to send them to university and so forth. And so at the end of the day, you're going to choose quality over quantity and you invest in work as opposed to child rearing. But I think what you've suggested is that a lot of this is really cultural and a lot of it's about preferences. You say that the decline in fertility correlates with the spread of television. I think you said that in Latin America, if you watch more, I mean, I don't think this was a rigorous scientific study, but if the rise of the telenovelas seems to have Correlated with the decline in fertility, and I think anecdotally, I know some people that say I can't afford another kid, but they have a guest house, they have a vacation homes, and you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars cars. That seems like four years of college right there in their driveway. So, how malleable are these preferences? Are these preferences driven by media advertising? Are these preferences inevitable, or are they things that the norms of the more religious people could? diffuse in a more secular way as people began to appreciate the joys of parenthood, let's say.
0: Well, in the book, I talk about modern and postmodern demography. So pre-modern was we had no control over our fertility or very little. We died very young, being bought, yeah, breeding like rabbits, dying like flies. Now, then you get to the modern, and that's the world Malthus described broadly. And it's a more nuanced world, and the later versions of Malthus describe it in more detail. Then you get to what I call modernity, and that's the process of economic progress. And that's the world that economists are in. I don't want to say stuck in, but homo economicus lives in modernity. And that's a world in which people become more urban, they become richer, they get more control over their fertility, they live longer, they make those rational economic calculations about another pair of hands in the fields was great, but another kid means I won't be able to pay to Harvard for the two I've got. Whatever it is, that's where the economic calculations are made. Then I think when we get to the point where much of the world is that we're kind of postmodern, and I'm thinking of that not in some kind of complicated theoretical French philosopher sense, but almost like the Robert Gordon view of the world, we've got to the point we're not starving, we've got clothes, we can heat our homes, we've got a comfortable bed to lie in. We've gone through that stuff. Then I think what really matters is values. We're not all going to get there very soon. We're not all going to get to Denmark. But more and more of the world has. Fantastically more people have been urbanised and got a reasonable level of education and income over the last sort of 50 years. So we've moved through that. And then the question is, what are your priorities when everyone can take contraception pretty much, where nobody's worrying about, is my child going to starve? then I think what matters is its cultural norm. They're mediated through economics. So they might be, oh my goodness, I couldn't possibly have a second child until I paid off the mortgage on my country house sort of thing, given exaggerated um, version of it. I don't dismiss the real struggles people have over housing and childcare and so on, but they parent in significance compared to those of the past when people had much bigger families. But I think the future really belongs to a world of values. We move out of the world of tell me your material condition and I can tell you your fertility rate to your fertility rate is going to be driven hugely, not by how much you earned or even the level of education you have, but by your beliefs. Now at the moment, the groups who have a really high fertility ideology, if you like, are small, but if they continue to grow at the kind of pace that they are at the moment, they continue to have families of that kind of size and they're able to retain their people. Then in a few hundred years, perhaps, and that is looking a long way out, they will become a much bigger element in society. And if modern liberal seculars are not able to find a way to marry their modernity, their liberalism and their secularity, such a word exists, their secularism, with sustainable demography, they will diminish. Or they'll have to constantly be recruiting people from those religious sects who
1: will be, meanwhile, trying to retain them. Doesn't seem like there's any logical reason why liberal secularism should imply small families, right? Isn't a large family consistent with a worldview of liberal secularism?
0: I think it depends how liberal secularism Does all well, I hope you're right. So, I'm not looking forward to the Harediization or the Amishization of the world. That's not what I'm proposing or aspiring to, and it's certainly not how I live. But I think it's a challenge to secular liberalism to say, okay, we want a world where people have real choices about their sexuality. We want a world where people have real choices about their lifestyles. I've got two daughters and one son, and they've all had exactly the same educational opportunities. And I'm as proud of my daughters and their achievements as of my son. That just goes to without saying, and my wife has been as ambitious and as hardworking as I am. So it goes without saying, we want all those things for our women, and we want all the choices and optionality that the modern world brings us. Those are good things. Now, how can we combine those? Not inevitably, but those have tended to be associated with smaller family sizes. So I think it's a real challenge for secular liberals. And I would consider myself broadly in that camp. At least I want a secular liberal society in which people can choose to be more or less religious or lead different sorts of lifestyles. How can that kind of society ensure that it doesn't breed itself out of existence? At the moment, it is breeding itself out of existence. So it may not be inevitable. I hope it's not inevitable. But that's the challenge that secular liberals face. There was one review of my book, which was actually quite positive in the Times, the London Times. It was more or less saying, Moreland is proposing a return of the patriarchy. Well, no, you know, I am not proposing a return. I'm just saying, this is a challenge for secular liberal societies. They're going to have to figure it out or they're going to wane. There's no point in just burying our heads in the sand.
1: Paul, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating set of conversations. The most recent book is called Tomorrow's People, Future of Humanity in Ten Numbers, and of course, The Human Tide. And for those of you who want to dig deep into the more academic side of things, demographic engineering, population strategies in ethnic conflict. You might find this somewhere in the used book bin. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Greg. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes,